Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. Okay, so we talked about our 2021 outlook here a few episodes back and elsewhere in webinars and such, but Jim and I wanted to revisit the topic and talk about 2021 products demand. So Jim, I've played the piano since I was about six years old and been thinking about picking up the guitar. So I'll tell you what, let's put on a show today. You sing and I'll strum some chords. What do you say? Eminence front, it's a put on. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> Pete Townsend does that a little bit better than I do. Words from Pete Townsend of the band The Who, describing the superiority one feels when one hides from some of the realities of life. We know Eminence Front by a few different names. Delusions of grandeur, hypocrisy, or even the latest term, virtue signaling. Before I get into each of the regions, here's a couple of the different Eminence Fronts we'll see more of in 2021 and beyond. An apparel company, I will leave nameless, denied selling 400 jackets to an oil field service company solely because they're associated with the oil and gas industry. The truly ironic part is none of this company's products could be manufactured without the oil and gas industry. The diesel and ship bunker fuel used used for transporting product from faraway factories is obvious. I'm talking literally about the fibers of the apparel, nylon, polyester, acrylic, spandex, to name a few. All fleece and microfiber microfiber is acrylic, polyester, and nylon. Lycra, Gore-Tex, Tactile, Polartec, which is a biodegradable fleece, Dacron, Terraline, everything moisture-wicking, Suplex, Rhinotech, and Lurex, if you happen to like a metallic sheen in your luxury clothing, all synthetic fibers. In fact, 60% of all the fibers used in the apparel industry is derived from oil and gas. Nomex is what firefighters, astronauts, race car drivers, and refinery workers wear as it has low levels of flammability and does not melt. Kevlar, five times stronger than steel. Cordura is a tough, textured nylon fiber used in making outdoor and military apparel. Are you listening, Denver? It's easy to punch oil and gas companies about the E in ESG. It's equally easy to punch apparel companies about the G in ESG. Buying from contractors does not insulate you from the subhuman work conditions in the factories that produce bulk materials, nor does spinning off the high-risk brands into a subsidiary that doesn't appear on your website. The Nandan Denim Fire on February 8, 2020, that killed seven and wounded 40, exposed treacherous working conditions. Mysteriously, a factory that paid its workers cents per hour and had no functioning fire suppression systems somehow paid each family of the deceased one million rupees each. I wonder where that came from. This eminence front would be comical mismanagement if not for the millions suffering from the tyranny of California's hatred for hydrocarbons. Robert Bryce's recent article exposed the very real damage California is doing to its own residents 
by banning natural gas power generation and home use in favor of electricity. Citizens, businesses, business leaders, politicians, universities, and even the PUC, Public Utility Commission, itself are starting to question the path of energy transition in California. Angelinos pay 295% more for electricity than I do in Houston. San Franciscans, 335% more. 42% of their power generation comes from renewables, and that's impressive. Impressive in the fact that this is an executive decree and not the will of the people. Impressive in the fact that December 3rd, the California PUC approved another 8.1% rate increase, thus increasing the regressive tax on the 5.5 million people already living in poverty in California. I wonder if this impression had anything to do with Hewlett-Packard, Oracle, and even Tesla moving their headquarters to Texas. Hey, we'll take those businesses. But before going any further about the U.S., what's up in Canada? The companies in Canada have done a pretty amazing job at managing the needs of their roughly 38 million people. They've stayed relatively well balanced through this pandemic. Here's some perspective. In May, Canada produced 22.5 million barrels a day of gasoline, 18.4 million a day of diesel, and 1.2 million a day of jet. In September, which is the last reporting period as of this podcast, the country produced 28.8 million barrels a day of gasoline, so 6.3 million barrels a day higher, 21.3 million barrels a day of diesel, and 2.3 million barrels a day of jet. Yeah, close to double the May total for jet. Given what Refinitiv has monitored in November, these numbers are very likely even stronger than the September numbers. This is what I mean by balance. The numbers for November from Stat Canada show the nation was short about 62,000 barrels a day for gasoline from a 28.8 million barrel demand base, long about 117,000 barrels a day for diesel, and just about exactly pegged the jet demand. Fantastic. So what does this mean for 2021? Obviously, the Canadians have a solid understanding of their production base and show no signs of dumping refined product on the export market like some are doing. Canadian product supply demand will likely remain well-balanced and dependent upon their own GDP growth, with some input from the GDP of Pad 1A. That's basically Boston and North. Let's look at some figures. September figures show a 3.9% GDP contraction year-on-year for Canada. Unemployment figures from Stat Canada show 8.5% for November and 7.5% for all of 2020. Personal loans are up 10% from June. The CPI for November is 1% higher year-on-year. Now for the good news. Credit card debt is down. Residential mortgages are up 2.9% since June. The Bank of Canada expects 2021 and 2022 to show a bit under 4% growth each year. If that does in fact happen, and the signs are showing it is, Canada's 2021 GDP will be even higher than 2019. How does this all affect Canadian refined products? On the east side, 
The new line three will help the margins for Montreal. Margins in Quebec will continue to struggle, and the big boy at St. John is battling nicely for its market share in Pad 1A. If demand in Pad 1A continues to grow, imports from other parts of the world will be insignificant to St. John's. Looking at Refinitiv's flows data for November 2020, Pad 1A imported 7.8 million barrels for the month. November 2019, Pad 1A imported 10.9 million barrels for the month. Looking at November year-on-year, November 2019 to 2020 shows some intriguing trends for import into Pad 1A. Valero controls the Quebec and Milford Haven origins, and they imported 18.6% of the refined product into Pad 1A in 2019, and down a little to 15.1% in 2020, likely just meeting their supply obligations. Rotterdam was the lone importer from ARA at 18.1% in November of 2020 versus 17.6% from all three locations, Antwerp, Rotterdam, and Amsterdam, in 2019. Not much of a change either. St. John upped its imports from 43.8% in November of 2019 to 56.5% in November of 2020 taking almost exactly all of the imports from Come By Chance. Exxon's Port Jerome entered the arena with a 7% imports in November of 2020, taking the smaller shares from Colombia, Latvia, Norway, and Portugal in 2019. So here's the big question. Will Exxon be importing gasoline into Pad 1A in 2021? Moving west, Sarnia will likely shut down one of its three refineries in 2021 and it's hard to imagine it would be Suncor, which leaves Imperial or Shell. With one of these two refineries shut, balance should be restored in this market. The West Coast refined product market in Canada has always baffled me. The four refineries around Edmonton really dictate the supply of product. Here's what baffles me, though. This part of the world has the cheapest crude and natural gas in the world, which means they should produce the cheapest refined products in the world. Why isn't Canada exploiting this gift? Don't know. Needless to say, they have as much or as little refined product as they care to have. Interesting. Okay, so take us back to the U.S. I already mentioned a couple eminence fronts we unfortunately will see more of in 2021. Here, let me touch on regional trends. We already talked about Pad 1A as the St. John refinery supplies over 50% of the demand with the balance being split between Quebec and Rotterdam. The only challenge to the structure is if Exxon wants to play from its Port Jerome supply base in France. Pad 1B, basically New York City down to Philly and includes all of Pennsylvania, continues to be the import battleground. November 19, saw imports about 380,000 barrels a day. November 2020 saw nearly 496,000 barrels a day. As we saw in Canada, the smaller players were crowded out by the bigger distribution hubs. I suspect this trend is happening worldwide, which will continue to put pressure on local refineries outside of the big distribution hubs. 
Pad1C, which is Virginia down to Florida, is a notoriously difficult place to import into. The economics of such get overwhelmed by the economics of the two large pipeline companies that supply from the U.S. Gulf Coast. The Gulf side of Florida is supplied by NOLA, or to a lesser extent, Lake Charles or Houston. There are a couple of things to watch. With Northwest Europe in a massive oversupply situation, will more refined product price its way into Savannah or Port Canaveral? Another thing to watch is the dynamics of flow into Tampa. With convent refineries shut down and Bell Chase having issues, the pricing dynamics are shifting. Tampa will definitely be supplied. It's the who and the where that will be interesting. Pad 2 will bear the brunt of the ugliness of closures in 2021. Our analysis suggests three refineries will lock their gates for the final time. Which three is a much longer conversation. Pad 2 and the Group 3 area routinely have the cheapest gasoline and diesel prices in the country. Closing three smaller refineries may not even change that. Pad 3. I'll just go ahead and order the Beef Wellington every day for this three-day seminar. Pad 3 is going to shine as much as a refinery can in this market. Margins will remain challenging. However, the pressure on smaller, less efficient refineries that I previously talked about is being applied by the very large, efficient refineries in Pad 3. NOLA, that's New Orleans, Louisiana, is a perfect example. Shell's convent closure is a boost for the other refineries on the Mississippi River. Exxon Baton Rouge has already allocated CapEx for expansion. The Pad 4 refining and products market is as quirky as the region itself. Did you know Pad 4 is the largest U.S. reserve of oil sands? Or that Pad 4 has a waxy crude that looks like butterscotch peanut butter? The Gallup refinery that closed last year was isolated and not well connected. The rest of the Pad 4 refineries are all pretty well connected. I wouldn't be shocked to see another Pad 4 refinery close, but if it does, it will be because of more than just economics. Pad 5 refined product market is going to be front and center for President-elect Biden in 2021. In spite of rising product demand with rising economic activity in the three major demand centers, we will likely see one refinery shut down in the Puget Sound area and another one shut in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm unlikely to see anything close in the LA market, as even though the Angelinos hate hydrocarbons, they love their cars even more. What will put this on Biden's map is the inflow of product from China and South Korea. Economically, this makes sense only because of an unlevel playing field. But from a stability and trade deficit standpoint, this needs to be managed. What was the Trans-Pacific Partnership was reorganized and signed by China and 14 other countries a bit more than a month ago with zero U.S. involvement. And that, my friends, is why the Pad 5 products market better be on President Biden's agenda. Well, I know that normalizing relations with Cuba and Venezuela is on Biden's agenda. Now, aside from recording these podcasts with you, Going to my kids' soccer games is about the best part of my week. 
Uh, thankfully, there are no volcanoes. So tell me about Mexico. <laughs> Mexican soccer players don't flop. Instead, if they, fear, if they feel that they are fouled in some manner, whether it's called or not, in one of the next times down the field, they will jam their forehead into the offending player's face so hard their nose will explode like a volcano. I'm not sure I could give a better metaphor for the politics that President Obrador faces. Energy is just one of the craniums he's trying to dodge. This is exactly what is going to make the next couple of years of Mexican energy markets fascinating to watch. Let me give you some reference. Rounding numbers for argument's sake, Pemex produces about 700,000 barrels a day of refined products. Mexico imports a little under 1.1 million barrels, barrels a day. The refined product market is indeed a touch under 1.8 million barrels a day. On the demand side, Pemex sells 1.06 million barrels a day, and everyone else sells about 725,000 barrels a day. President Obrador wants to get Dos Bocos up and running and get the other six refineries to full capacity. That will get the refined product production up around 1.54 million barrels a day. Mexico will certainly continue to import refined products. However, the massive outlay of being on the wrong side of the crack will be minimized. So since I bring up being on the wrong side of the crack, let me detail what that means for Mexico. Then maybe the inducto will understand why Dos Bocos is a good idea for Mexico. Being on the wrong side of the crack means exporting the lower value product, crude, and importing the higher value product, refined products. From Pemex's recent release of numbers through October, they are exporting 1.1 million barrels a day of crude a day on average, Jan through October of 2020. As I mentioned above, they are importing a touch under 1.1 million barrels a day of refined products on average. The values aren't even close to the same price. The net difference between what Mexico receives from crude sales and what Mexico spends on refined products is $463 million a month. For the 10 months we have data, that's $4.63 billion in net money paid out because they are on the wrong side of the crack. Extrapolated for all of 2020, that's $5.56 billion for the year. And it gets worse for Mexico. That deficit only expands as the world economy gets back to normal and grows. Pemex will not be able to capture all of the $5.56 billion a year, but they will get the lion's share. Now that $14.7 billion in estimated cost for Dos Bocos doesn't seem to be so Estupido, does it? One more point on Mexico. China's Belt and Road Initiative has been very clear they will make Mexico the central distribution hub for distribution of Chinese products in all of the Americas. Obviously, the U.S. is the golden nugget there. Shackman is a Chinese truck manufacturer, and they are building a Class 8 truck manufacturer plant in Suidad, Chahagun, 72 miles north and east of Mexico City. Class 8 rigs are the biggest allowed on the roads in the U.S. at 57 feet long and typically around 35,000 pounds. 
To get the Chinese goods manufactured in Mexico into the U.S., there are three mature paths, trucks, rail, and ship. All require diesel or bunker fuel. Would anyone like to venture a guess who is financing the Mexican refinery rehab and a chunk of the Dos Bocos refinery? So, Corey, how does the demand picture look in South America? Well, for 2021, the product story in South America will be shaped by two major factors, continued pandemic effects, product flows. I've been keeping a running analysis of COVID-19 mitigation measures in South America, but I'm afraid that by the time we get this posted, uh, things will have changed. And I say that because of what's going on in the UK. So a new, more contagious strain? (laughs) Great. As it is now, 21 million people in the UK are directly affected by this new holiday lockdown. So how does this affect South America? Well, Argentina, Colombia, Chile, and Peru have all imposed some form of restriction and or quarantine measure on people flying from Britain. But you know who hasn't? Brazil. Ah, Brazil. Our half of everything. You've heard me talk about this. Brazil has about half of South America's population, almost half of its refining capacity, and has a little more than half of South America's refined products demand. And here's where it gets ever more cloudy with the 2021 South American demand picture. At the federal level, even though he got coronavirus himself, President Bolsonaro feels that all this hype over COVID is malarkey. He stated that he will not take a COVID vaccine. And remember back in November, he supported protesters in Sao Paulo that were protesting against mandatory vaccination. And to be fair to Bolsonaro and the protesters, uh, mandatory vaccinations strike a sour chord with many people. But the other issue here was essentially that this was an untested Chinese vaccine that would, in essence, be tested on the people of Sao Paulo, you know, essentially against their will. Number two, Brazil is similar to the United States in a vaccine purchase COVID response kind of way. At the federal level, decisions can be made about what and how much vaccine to purchase, but the states are responsible for reopening and lockdown measures at the state level. So for Brazil, Sao Paulo is important for more than just protests against mandatory vaccinations. That's also where the most people are, something like 46 million, which is uh, about a quarter of all of Brazil. Number three, Sao Paulo has a five-level scheme of economic resumption denoted by colors, green, blue, yellow, orange, and red. Back in October, the state actually reached green status, which allowed places like movie theaters to open for the first time since being closed in March. But as of December 1st, the entirety of the state was moved back into yellow. What does this mean? It means until at least January 4th, Sao Paulo will be slower. Business capacity under green was 60%, but under yellow it is 40%. And where green allowed uh, businesses to be open longer, now they're limited to being open a maximum of 10 hours a day, and they all must be closed by 10 p.m. There are some carve-outs here, like shopping centers. During the holidays, will be open 24 hours a day to prevent large crowds, but overall, the state has regressed to a more restrictive environment. And the state's health secretary has already stated that they are prepared to impose more serious lockdown measures. Now, elsewhere in Brazil, 
Rio de Janeiro essentially returned to normal, but for social distancing requirements. And the closing of schools earlier this, this month, earlier this month with no uh, date set for reopening. And Brasilia essentially is, is reopened, but for mass requirements. Now, outside of Brazil, and important for our products demand story in 2021, Argentina and Chile. As I said earlier, both countries have put restrictions around people flying in from Britain. But what else is going on there for COVID-related reopenings? I mean, for Argentina, restaurants are at 30% capacity. Limited gatherings are permitted, and people can move around without permission passes. For Chile, the focus is Santiago. Chile's population is about 19 million people, and 7 million of those people live in Santiago. Reopening there was going along, but you know, mid-November mid and earlier this month, uh, cases surged 53%. So the government reinstituted phase two restrictions. This means total lockdowns on weekends with only essential businesses to remain open and restaurants limited to outdoor seating only and at 25% capacity. Also, interregional travel is prohibited. Hmm. So how do you see these trends impacting demand? That's a great question. Uh, I used to work for someone that was more about the direction of the trend than absolute numbers. And I suppose there's some base level, uh, look out the window of the plane that you're flying and not just as your instrument's value to this. And if you think about the basic trends going on in these high population areas, I say the picture looks better than it did for 2020. I mean, first, even as we slip back into more restrictive measures in some locations, it's not to the extremes that we saw earlier in 2020. And then there's a level of enforcement. Even though the measures are in place, uh, populations have started to be less inclined to abide by the measures. And authorities in Latin America aren't particularly keen on strict enforcement. Now, activity and demand certainly aren't to the levels they were pre-pandemic, but I think we can look back at early 2020 and call that the bottom. What you're thinking is this, Corey, you didn't say anything about the vaccine. Well, yes, the vaccines. Uh, they will help, but one, will still take some time to reach the masses. Uh, two, are facing some pushback, i.e. not everyone wants a vaccine. And three, will first be delivered to those on the front lines and to those most vulnerable. If you're on the front lines, say you're a medical professional, your activity hasn't slowed much. <laughs> Maybe it's increased. Uh, thus, your energy consumption is likely about where it was historically. But more importantly, uh, delivery, delivery to the most vulnerable, like the elderly, doesn't particularly change the demand picture either, as that group uses less in the way of refined products. And one thing that Jim and I have found ourselves talking more and more about is the energy transition. But for 2021, especially in South America, this doesn't really apply. The pandemic didn't see any large parts of the population running out to buy electric cars, nor did it see a drastic switch to cleaner power gen. So numerically, what does this mean? Starting with the big number and one important for U.S. refiners, Brazilian diesel demand. Diesel demand growth in Brazil prior to the pandemic had been a bit disappointing. After peaking at over a million barrels per day in 2014, there was, of course, in 2015 and 2016, a deep recession. For 2017 and 18, we stayed at subdued levels and finally saw some growth in 2019. The last data point here available is October. And there we saw stronger demand than we saw in October of 2019. 
Now for 2021, I forecast that we see average demand at about 940,000 barrels per day. For Brazilian gasoline demand, our second largest number in the group, we lost about 40,000 barrels per day this year in demand. I see that recovering, but not growing, so about 680,000 barrels per day. What about the other large economies? We lost about 20,000 barrels per day of diesel demand and 25,000 barrels per day of gasoline demand in Argentina. I think we get, get, get back to about 225,000 barrels per day of diesel demand in 2021 and 150,000 barrels per day for gasoline. In Chile, diesel demand has recovered. So for the year, we really didn't lose much. So 170,000 barrels per day in 2021. Uh, gasoline demand, we lost about 20,000 barrels per day. I don't think we get all that back. So gasoline demand to 75,000 barrels per day. Of course, turning to jet. Well, that's another story entirely. It's not as big of a deal for Argentina and Chile. Argentina lost 33% of jet demand, but 2019 demand was only 35,000 barrels per day. Chile, the same thing, 29% loss. But 2019 demand was only 28,000 barrels per day. Brazil, though, kind of echoes with the rest of the world, 51% loss of demand. So even with the successful vaccine rollout, et cetera, Jet demand in Brazil is not going to return to normal in 2021. I see it coming and maybe reaching an average of 80,000 barrels per day in 2021. One final point, LPGs are more important in the Western Hemisphere for South America than for North America. And for both Argentina and Brazil, demand actually increased this year with more people at home. Now the increase was minimal, but I think we can see it stay here uh, where it is for 2021, 45,000 barrels per day for Argentina and around 235,000 barrels per day for Brazil. All right. That's all for me, Jim. So we can only touch upon the forces influencing the refined product markets in 2021. They are many, they are macro and they are divergent. Strap yourselves in my brothers and sisters. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Next episode, Corey and I will be talking about the asymmetrical return to normal and growth prospects. All right. Thanks, Jim. So for everyone out there, Happy New Year and uh, see you next time.